we're coming back to life. It's like the spring is coming all over again with regard to getting out of our houses and post-quarantine slowly. Now, they say, what about a second wave? And what about the impact of the protesters last week where nobody was socially distancing? Are we going to have a spike? Are hospitalizations and deaths going to go up again? And are we going to be locked back inside? What they're not talking about through all this are the treatments. They're forgetting it wasn't about zero. It wasn't about obliterating this disease. It was worrying about whether or not, the goal was whether or not the healthcare system could handle it to bend the curve. Well, treatments help bend the curve. It's not whether or not you'll get sick, it's what do you do about it if you do. One treatment in particular, hydroxychloroquine, so politically charged. Doctors in the field actually are using it very effectively at the right time, at the right dose, with the right associated product. But that's not what the headlines are saying. They're saying it's scary, it's dangerous, you'll die, it doesn't work. But that's not necessarily so simple. The research behind those are not necessarily clean research. That's why I've got Dr. Jacob Teitelbaum back with me today to talk about hydroxychloroquine and what you need to know about it. I'm Sarah Heiner, and this is the Bottom Line Advocator Podcast. And don't forget, rate and review us and share it, please. This information is so important to get out, and it's just not out there in the mainstream media. Hi, Facebook. Happy Thursday. I'll do my wait for a second until um, my screen's clear. So I hope you're all doing very well today and enjoying the world starting to open up. Um, I know that it's been very exciting in Connecticut as we're starting to open up and starting to feel a moment of normalcy. Um, I also know that there's a lot of fear surrounding opening up and will there be a second wave and what if the, the crowds are too much and what are going to be the implications of all of these protests and tens of thousands of people that have been shoulder to shoulder and what's going to happen with all of that. Um, so what we're going to talk about today actually is surrounding that, surrounding those fears, but in particular, we're gonna talk about treatment. And whatever happened to hydroxychloroquine, which continues to be a politically charged treatment. And we've got Dr. Jacob Teitelbaum is back with me today <laughs> uh, to talk about that because he dissects every one of these studies. He and I every week are talking about every one of these because the headlines say one thing, and then you get in the data and you go, wait, not really. It really, <laughs> and I want you to understand it because you have to understand it because, because it's your life. It's your choice, right? So what are you going to do to protect yourself? Um, so anyway, so let me just also remind you, we've got, um, I've got a growing library of our Facebook lives. They're in Facebook. They're also on our YouTube channel. Um, I'm very excited to tell you, actually, Dr. Jacob, is, uh, Jake's going to join me uh, starting June 24th. We're actually going to do a six-part series on strengthening your immune system because Drugs, hydroxy, remdesivir, vaccines, no matter what it is, at the root is our immune systems. And the stronger our immune systems, the more likely you are that you can avoid anything and keep yourself from getting sick at all. And it's very simple choices. It's looking at our whole body, simple things that you can do, simple choices we make every day that can either help you or frankly can undermine you. So I'm very excited about that. Look in the, uh, in the little chats, you'll see information about that. Don't forget also, if you have questions, then type those on in and we'll, we'll try and get those over to Jake. Um, all right, let me remind you how great Dr. Teitelbaum is. Uh, board certified internist, holistic physician, and nationally known expert in the fields of chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, sleep, and pain, all of which connect deeply to our immune system. Hence, he's so tied into this whole concept. 
Um, he's the author of numerous books, 10 books, including The Fatigue and Fibromyalgia Solution and Real Cause, Real Cures, which we just published from Bottom Line. So super excited about that. You can find that on our Bottom Line website. Um, and he also has this amazing app, his Cures A to Z, which is a free iPhone and Android application. If you don't have it, you should download it because it has so much great information. Just quick questions. You have a little question, you have a little issue, and you want to understand what, the, what possible treatments and, and what's possibly underlying and why you're, what's going on. It's a great app for you to download. All right. I've rattled fast enough and long enough. Um, hi, Jake. Aloha. Hey, aloha, Sarah. <laughs> Can I say that from Connecticut? Absolutely. We give it, make you honorary Hawaiian for today. You can do that. <laughs> I'm wearing a grass skirt. I forgot to tell you. Ooh. <laughs> All right. So hydroxychloroquine and fears of opening and fears. Of, so they, the world, again, the headlines, they want you to be panicked. And so as, as things are opening up and there's generally good news, every email that I see, at least in Connecticut, the hospitalizations are down. Counts for cases may be up. Don't forget, they're counting more people. They're testing more people. So those counts are going up. But as we're opening, there's this grand fear. And to me, one of the biggest things also is treatments. And we want to talk about that. Uh, but, you know, overall, State of the Union, one, you know, quick, quick statement of what you've seen high level on where we are with COVID. Okay, so number one, it's important to get perspective because the media just does not give that. The media makes you think everybody's dying. But here's the thing. It's, you're looking at one out of 15,000 Americans died in the last three months from COVID. One out of 15,000. Now, one out of 330 people died in general, as happens day in, day out. So, you know, when you look at it, the odds are really pretty tiny. You're way, way, way more likely, maybe 30 times more likely to die from something else than COVID. Let, um, me, let me challenge you because people are sitting in out there going, yeah, but they never had, were dying of this before. Right. So what okay. happened? So you also gave me another statistic a little bit ago about that the overall death rate in this country mm -hmm. is pretty comparable to a year ago. Well, yeah, because that's not, the thing. There's not a 100,000 person spike in deaths. There's a lot of reason to believe that the 100,000 figure is really incorrect because, number one, um, anybody who has COVID, even if you then fall off a cliff, that's considered a death from COVID, even if you had no symptoms and it would not have caused a single problem. Uh, number two, we saw Medicare did reporting on nursing homes and COVID rates. We turned out that they were off by a factor of 10. They were saying, well, this nursing home had 1,000 cases and, and deaths when the nursing home only had 80 to 100 residents. So, I mean, the numbers were just totally crazy. So what do you do? You go to the CDC and you look at how many deaths did we have total in the United States the last three months. And we had the usual 1 million deaths, which is normal for a three month period. Um, it was only 2% higher for the same three month period a year ago. Translation, we've had about 20,000 excess deaths because of COVID in the last three months. And meanwhile, and we've, had a line. And we've had a cumulative reporting of it of, you know what, I, I'm embarrassed. I didn't look at the latest 100,000 some. Over, yeah. Well over 100,000. Yeah. yeah. So it suggests that those numbers, I think my impression is that the numbers given for COVID deaths are grossly inflated and the number of cases are much higher than we suspect which is a good right. thing. Which, which plays back to testing and which plays back to every time you read it, see a headline now that says their cases are up, the cases are up, they should be. They're testing. Please yes. let us know. 
Right. And, and, it's, and it's okay as you get out, you're gonna see a spike and that's how we develop herd immunity. It's something that needs to happen. The key thing is to make sure that most people, because again, if you're in a room with a bunch of people with COVID, the odds of your uh, not of getting COVID and being symptomatic are only about 15%. So the trick is putting you in that 85% of people, and it's not hard to do, or even if you come in contact with COVID, no big deal. You won't even know it, or you may feel like you had a normal cold or something. Um, that's what the media is not talking about. They're stressing, oh my God, this person died. It's true. All right. So confusing messages all the time. Let's talk about hydroxychloroquine, which I just, I'm like a terrier with this thing in my teeth because mm -hmm. the number of research, research results that have been presented and they're bad research. It's so hard. You'd think that scientists are doing this research and the reporting on these studies and yet study after study has been what I'll call poor design. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about a couple of those because every time they come out, I send them to you. And part of the reason I send them to you is because the first video we did, we made a very strong statement. And I worry, I want to be sure that if we said something, I'm not going to harm anybody. Mm -hmm. So we made a very strong statement. You were very clear that you would take it, you recommend it. Mm -hmm. And so every time the study, a study comes out, I go, oh my gosh, you know, do we need to retract something? And every time you've said, look at the study, here's the problem with it. So for example, in Brazil, there was a study in Brazil that they were talking about. And the flaw on that was? They're using two to three times the recommended dose. For, and most medications, if I give you three times the recommended dose, you're going to kill people for a lot of medications. They were, you, you need to use the proper recommended dose. And um, massive dosing is, of course, unsafe and unwise. And most of the excess mortality you've seen has been in cases where they have been giving way, way, way too high a dose. And then there are the other cases where they were trying it, I'll call it as a Hail Mary pass to very mm -hmm. sick people who had sadly, you know, one foot in the grave and it was really a last gasp effort. And I think some of that was in the veteran study, which was observational. It wasn't controlled at all. Mm -hmm. um, so there too, they're saying it didn't help, but. <laughs> it's funny, you know, when I, when I was in, uh, High school, my professor, my, my teacher gave me a book called Lying with Statistics. I love it's that funny. book. This, this guy is so good. And when I had my 50th surprise birthday party, my wife invited him to come visit because I could talk about this guy. He's great. And it served me well in medicine because when you look at these studies, what they show is that, as you noted, you know, when they gave it to people who weren't very sick, uh, you had X number of deaths. And then you gave it to people who are incredibly sick on death store. And they had the same number of deaths, which is, means that it saved a lot of lives. And they said, well, no, there's no decrease in deaths because you're comparing apples and oranges. Um, or you see studies where there's like a 39% lower death rate. Um, and they said, but it's not statistically significant. Where Remdesivir had a 32% lower death rate and because they had more people in the study, right. it, and then they'll go, oh my God, it's significant. So, well, you know. Well, drug studies all the time where you get like a 4% improvement in you know extension of your life if you're being treated for stage four cancer mm -hmm. and they approve that drug yeah and and you know and it can be horribly toxic and expensive so it's uh, the bottom line is you really need to look at the data and see what it shows and uh there's one study that did recently come out uh, called the recovery study that 
hasn't been published yet, so I haven't been able to read the report, but the initial talking about the study suggests that may have been a well-done study, suggesting that in people with severe uh, COVID, that may not be the time to use it. But again, each time I look at the study, I see these, again, every study has flaws, that means nothing, but these have what are called fatal flaws. They make the interpretation of the data that they're giving plain old wrong. There was a study last week, I think, that was in the Lancet that got very big headlines that it doesn't work and it was dangerous. And then the doctors disavowed themselves of it because the data was garbage. Well, the doctors didn't disavow themselves of it until it got proven right. that, oh my God, there's no way they could have possibly have gotten this data. They made it up. The, do the people that were supplying the data, this was not firsthand research that the doctors were doing. The, pu the people who published this data right. did not have access to the data. They published the study and they couldn't even see the data. And it seems like the company just, the impression is that it just made the data up. Oh, what would be popular for us to say? They'd like this. Okay, and they just made stuff up. And the thing, and Lancet went ahead, published it like that. Now, I wonder if it had shown that the chloroquine was positive, if Lancet would have published that study without really having done thorough peer review. But there's this bandwagon in academic medicine where if anything says anything negative against the chloroquine or against anything natural, they will jump right on top of it without really looking at the data. And there's this incredible publication bias that goes on. Well, so the, the researchers, the scientists, let's talk about research design for a second. They're smart people, right? Mm -hmm. It's so fascinating to me how flawed some of these research designs are, where they're using super high doses, which why would you give super high doses? The hydrochloroquine, plaquenil has been used for years. They understand safe dosing levels. They understand the risk of the heart arrhythmia, right? Mm -hmm. um, so they know that, but then they design these studies that have like almost intentionally create the problem. Mm -hmm. High dose, I think Azithromax also can risk AFib. Uh, um, can, uh, VTAC, yeah. Right, so that well, they can throw that in there. And then like it's issue of who should you give it to? Do you give it to early on or do you give it to later? Um, like where, why would the research design go so bad? Or are they honestly trying to figure out the limits of, you know, where to, how to push it? I, I think they're well-meaning people. And in Brazil, I think they just had really sick people, very limited medical supplies relative to some countries, overwhelming need. And they were just doing Hail Mary stuff again. And they're figuring, well, if it's 10 is good, 100 is better. Um, and they realized, and they were, as you said, trying to figure out the dosing because in the Brazil arm, they had one normal dose arm and then they had the high dose arm. And the normal dose arm, we're still waiting for the results. They seem to be doing fine. The high dose arm, they want to see, well, maybe that's going to work better. And obviously didn't because people got toxic and got arrhythmias. So part of it is just trying to feel the way through it. Um, but a lot of it is, there is an incredible bias right now. Um, and it's sad how the illness has become politicized, uh, even in medicine. Um, so they're well-meaning people, but there's a bias right now against anything. If there's a medication that is expensive, academia, including the NIH, is very behind it because these are the companies that are going to be hiring them when they leave the NIH to go into private business. And they prove, they know 
you do good things for us when you're in government or in academia or when you're at the hospitals and you're recommending our stuff, you're going to get a great high paying job when you get out. And it's not that people are ill-meaning. It just creates a culture of everything expensive is really good and we will get behind that. And anything that's, you know, competition, natural remedies, generic medications are going to get slammed. Um, I'll give you one data point that'll make it easier to see. Um, we like to think studies are all very objective in the whole thing, but one study showed, um, very nice, and other studies have showed similar, that if a company pays for the study, that study is 24 times more likely to show a positive result than if the study is done independently. Mm -hmm. So we and think the science increasingly are spending money on those studies, even if they're at universities. Yes, because the people who are running the studies are on the speaking bureaus and the payroll of those companies. And I don't want to be, companies. you know, we all, we all want to be able to trust it. I don't want to be conspiracy theorists. I mean, the other people. aspect of this, frankly, also with regard to with advertising and television. So the media, right? So the media also, if you watch TV, who's the number one, who's, you know, top category of, of well, advertisers. The these, number three category. Is pharmaceuticals. pharmaceuticals. Right. So these, well, it's like the news programs are probably even higher, right? If you, yeah. if you look at the news program category. So same thing. I mean, it, and I've, I've seen it firsthand too, where we were doing a natural segment on one of the morning news shows and it totally got watered down from the concept because they were afraid that we were taking a swipe at pharma. So well, let me, let me give a simple, data point here you know I'm, i know a lot of publishers in the industry of major magazines you're one i like the best <laughs> but the um they will, exactly but the ones that do the drug company advertisement contracts often come with clauses but what the advertising reps say when they go to the media is we want a, a happy safe comfortable home for our ad defined as when they get the contracts, those contracts may include clauses like you will agree not to run anything positive about natural therapies within 15 pages of the ad or even in the whole issue. That's right. in the contract. Yeah. And these people who are at the news media know that if they say anything negative about natural therapies, it's kind of like training a dog. You know, you, you, if you give them enough bacon bits, you can get them to do anything. And you give the news media bacon bits with the advertising. You want us to say what? Oh, slam this! Absolutely, oh, and your stuff is great. You know, it's—they're not bad people. All good, well-meaning people. Uh, but it's important as consumers to understand what's going on and what colors and taints the information we get, so how we can assess it and see what really is happening. So that's what I do. I—I I don't take money from either side. I don't care. I just care about what helps, what works, what's truth. Exactly. Um, and, you know, we digressed, but I think, as you said, it's important that people understand the context, but let's go back to the hydroxychloroquine and the many aspects. Again, it's not easy getting this research. We all want fast answers, but there just isn't going to be a fast drug that is well-trusted and thoroughly tested. Seems like there's not going to be a, a vaccine that's well-tested and thoroughly tested in the very near future. So factors to, in terms of the test, I mean, just we run down them, like, at what stage of the disease do they do it? What's the dosing? Should they do it? What else? Like, what are the just, you know, the, the multiple, the multiple quadrants, you know, like segments. If you were setting up a full design, like, what are the different pieces? Just so people understand how complex this issue is. 
Well, again, the number one, can it go ahead, if you, if you work in a hospital, can you be taking it to prevent or getting the disease? We don't know, maybe. Uh, it will certainly not be 100% effective, but it might not just decrease the likelihood of catching it, uh, but also the severity. We need that research and that's still underway, we don't know. Uh, once you get symptoms of the disease, can cough, shortness of breath, fever, if you start early, will it make the disease less severe? Would lower mortality and go away quicker and also make you contagious for a shorter period of time. These studies are underway. We're waiting to see. The problem with both of those groups is that the mechanism why the medication works is through zinc. And they really need to be supplementing zinc in these studies and they're not. Most of the people of uh, doctors who you may hear all over the country who have been using it successfully, each on our own, this is a conclusion I came to on my own, not because I heard other doctors talk about it. You give 50 of zinc, you give the Plaquenil, you give these things together. Um, that's an early that symptom. Works in the early, early right. in the disease or even before the disease. So those are the two main areas where we were talking about that where the Plaquenil could be helpful. Now, whether it can help in severe disease, we don't know, probably not so much. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, let's talk about zinc for a second. So, okay, the, again, the, the segments, the dosing, the who, like age, mortality, like cofactors, you don't even know comorbidities, whether or not, you know, whether it's safe. So it's so complicated and complicated to get enough people to even be in those studies if you mm -hmm. have to weed out people with certain comorbidities or anything. Um, all right, so let's talk about the zinc for a second because, again, they're doing, they continue to test. There's a very large test that the NIH started recently with the Plaquenil with the ZPAC, with the zithromycin. But I don't think that there's a zinc component to it. And as you said, that mm -hmm. none of them are, so, so will any of these studies that are using the antibiotics work or are those all going to shoot themselves in the foot because of risks to antibiotics or what? I'll ask you four questions at the same time. Or why were they thinking the antibiotics was a good thing? Well, the antibiotics have anti-inflammatory effects and also antiviral effects. Uh, whether you look at the Zithromax, the doxycycline, the problem is that most of these are in test tube studies, so we don't know in human beings. We had the one study, the French study, uh, that did have a suggestion, but again, um, it's the suspicion again is that early in the disease, uh, is the time to use these. And uh, later in severe cases, that's where I'm, I'm more likely to go. I would optimize zinc, I would optimize high dose vitamin C, I would even give intravenous licorice. Um, but the remdesivir, that's where there'll probably be about a 40% benefit from that medication in the very sick hospitalized cases. Remdesivir so, to, to sick people in the yes. severely sick. Yeah, that's the Which is people huge, who are hospitalized. To the credit of pharmaceutical, that if they have something for the severely sick, and That's I know I, I was reading something the other day that the death rate is down, whether or not the the uh, virus is weakening and or they're more effective at treating in the hospitals, that they, they know better how to treat the, the patients. Yeah, or maybe like the flu season that's passing. Right. You know. We should all be <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll see what happens on the second spike. We'll see. Um, so remdesivir for later, all right, then the hydroxy. And I've talked to people too. I was just talking yesterday to somebody about with about a doctor that is using on a regular basis, very effectively. I've talked to a number of doctors, hydroxy with the zinc. Absolutely. 
Yeah. I would. If this, I mean, I take zinc now myself. Um, and I like people take 50 milligrams a day for one month, regardless, just to build up their levels. And then on 15 milligrams a day maintenance and 50 milligrams again a day on first sign of infection. Zinc is poison to this virus. And the main problem with the zinc, if there, was, if there wasn't this main problem with zinc, all the researchers would be using it to be the top thing in the study. It's a nickel. It's cheap. It's cheap. Mm -hmm. If this was a thousand dollars, if this was like remdesivir, who knows what it costs? But you know, for the for the hepatitis drug, Gilead charged a hundred thousand dollars a person. So we'll see what they'll charge here. I heard um, that it's going to come all the way down to like four thousand dollars. Uh, God, who knows what they're going to do. And when, before hepatitis medication came out, they're making noises. We're going to make this really affordable for everybody. I said, well, it's really good if you're Gilead, you know. And then they tagged 100000 on it. So anyway, uh, if zinc costs $20,000 a person and was patentable, it right. would be on the front page of the New York Times, the NIH, all the academicians, all the media, and all of would be behind it. And that would be the savior thing. But it's cheap. So Jake, if somebody gets diagnosed with it or they think that they've got it, again, they're not necessarily testing everybody early on. Mm -hmm. um, if you get it, they'll send you home, unless you're very serious, they'll send you home to, to heal, to drink water and rest and stuff. Um, what should people do? Should they ask their doctor about getting this? And if the doctor challenges them and says, no, you don't need zinc, should they do it anyway? Is there any risk to it? Well, for me, I just recommend people take the zinc the way I talked about, uh, take, you know, the vitamin C, the vitamin D, and just... Even the, without this, it, this is just prophylactic where we've talked about... Yeah, just, again, 85% of people who come in contact with it either won't get it or will have very mild cases. These things put you in that 85%, so you're not in the media as the one in, you know... 2,000 Americans who die from it. So it's, you do these simple things and you don't even have to face the whole issue. Um, but for me, I, you know, for the people I'm treating, uh, I'm happy to write for them for the Plaquenil to have on hand just in case symptoms hit. Um, but again, the dosing is uh, 400 milligrams twice a day for one day and then 200 milligrams twice a day for five days. And I, 14 pills, I have no problem writing that for the people I treat. If your doctor won't write it, don't waste your time arguing with them. Uh, just do the things you can do on your own with the nutritional support and getting good sleep and um, hydration. And have a, uh, one last question on the hydroxy. At the low dose, at the, I'll call it the normal dose, what's the risk or anyone in particular at risk for the heart issue? Okay. In over 10 million cases of people who are given that low dose for malaria and things like that, there have been zero, zero reported cases and over 10 million uses of abnormal heart rhythms or eye problems. But those people do not have a virus in them that they're fighting that is mm -hmm. affecting every organ in some ways. Well, here's the issue. You'll get about 20% of people hospitalized with COVID who are having heart damage. And the doctors know that they'll do a troponin test and they will see, oh, okay, this person's having heart injury. We need to monitor them and the rest. In those cases, that's when I would be more cautious because again, we're talking about early on before people are getting this kind of heart damage. So, and, and in those settings, I think the risk is really pretty modest, um, but we need more research. That research is being done. And so using the research at hand to suggest is safe uh, and reasonable, and when the more, more research comes out, I reserve my right to update my opinion given that research. 
if somebody has a heart condition, are they more vulnerable to the arrhythmia because their heart muscle itself is vulnerable? If or is this one any... of those things that you have no idea who it's going to hit when it might possibly hit? There's something called prolonged QT interval. Um, but again, we, don't, we haven't seen that with the Plaquenil alone in the normal dosing. With Zithromax, you would see that in 43 out of a million people would develop fatal arrhythmias. Right. Um, but we, it was zero in the platinum group. So again, you know, I think check with your doctor on it. If your doctor's not open to it, they're not going to get a prescription anyway. Uh, if your doctor's done an EKG, they'll know if you have the prolonged QT interval is what it's called. If you look at the EKG, it takes a f two seconds and you'll see if it's there. Um, those are the people that are most at risk. If you're hospitalized, if I was treating people in the hospital, I would be considering it at the low dose just as part of throwing them into the mix. I would check the EKG, make sure the QT interval is not being prolonged because that's a marker that tells you that the person's at risk. And then again, the zinc that can, can only help it. I think everybody in the country, I would have put them on 50 milligrams of zinc for a month. And I think our outcomes would be much better along with some other nutrients. All right. Thank you, Jake. We will continue. <laughs> we will continue to monitor hydroxychloroquine. We'll continue to monitor treatments. If anyone has any questions, chime in right now uh, before I say goodbye to, to Jake and let him go back to his very busy practice. Um, but we will continue to monitor this. We will continue to look at all the treatments and again, looking at what you can do to protect yourself. Um, and that, as we've talked about so many times, our bodies are so magical in terms of what they're capable of if we allow it to do it. So let's try and allow it to do it. Um, also, if you have other questions that you want us to talk about in the future, future Facebook Lives, type those up as well, let me know, because um, we, we got Jake will come back anytime. He's been so generous with his time. And I've got a whole army of people that love coming to talk. So thank you so much. Don't forget, share these. Um, let other people know about what we're doing. And keep your eyes out for that Immune Lifeline program because it's really going to be awesome. Thanks. Thanks, Jake. Thank you all. Bye-bye. I'm talking to Dr. Jacob Teitelbaum about the very controversial and confusing use of hydroxychloroquine for treating COVID-19. The research is contradictory, as are reports from in-the-field usage. That's why we call on experts like Dr. Teitelbaum to get below the headlines. Dr. Teitelbaum understands what's inside those research studies as he's helped thousands of patients find vital health with his balanced perspective on the judicious use of conventional medicine along with natural strategies to help the body function at its best. He's just one of thousands of top experts who are part of the Brain Trust for our flagship publication, Bottomline Personal, where we provide guidance to help you live happier, healthier, and wealthier. Our experts share insights on not just beating disease, but on all aspects of your life, including managing your money, smart home repair, better relationships, improved emotional health, how to find bargains, unique travel destinations, smart tax strategies, and so much more. Bottom Line Personal has been helping people lead more informed and vibrant lives for nearly 50 years with our actionable and double fact-checked advice. Subscribe today and get a free bonus book, Bottom Line's Best Bets, full of some of our experts' greatest tips of all time. Just go to bottomlineinc.com forward slash expert podcast. That's bottomlineinc.com forward slash expert podcast.